As marketers, we often fall trapped to only taking care of acquisition. So much so that we forget there is often a much cheaper and easier way to acquire customers, such as mining your own database or focusing more on retention. That's what Trackstar AI, a fintech based in the US, helps banks do. Check their own databases. It integrates with lenders and banks and helps them uncover opportunities to reactivate customers who haven't completed an application or were not eligible. In other words, using alternative data to acquire new customers. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Diane Mayer, head of marketing at Trackstar. She has an incredible amount of experience in the marketing sector, having worked with companies like Kimberly Clark, Ferrari, and Mizuno. In this episode, we chat about Trackstar's acquisition strategy with LinkedIn and PR, how they're branding a product that constantly changes, and Diane's experience on what to look out for when hiring someone in marketing. I thoroughly enjoy this conversation, and I hope you will too. Let's hear from Diane. Great. So, Diane, my first question to you is, in a, in a piece uh, where you were featured, you said that you like to lead with data. So I was just wondering, what, what is your favorite marketing metric or piece of data, I guess, at the moment? Great question. And the internet has so much of it, right? So you have to be careful what you choose uh, because you have to be able to back it up and people need to be able to understand what they're looking at. So sometimes uh, in the marketing world, we can use acronyms and lose everybody. Uh, And so especially when you're really good at it and you've been doing it a long time, you tend to move too fast and leave everybody behind. They don't even know what SEO is, for example. That's a pretty basic acronym in the marketing space. But my favorite piece is really, truly, what are people searching for? What are they looking for? And then, because I feel like what they say is very different than what they type with their fingers. So many times, I'm sure you've seen it, you're in a meeting and people are using their laptops and they're Googling the heck out of things. And they're trying to keep up with whatever the conversation is whatever hit the news that morning, any of the trends that are happening, something big could have happened that, you know, cannonballed into the marketing team's efforts like COVID, uh, things like that. So really fingers to keys uh, also includes voice. You can tell the searches are using voice. They have weird phrases and things. Uh, And that's where I start because that helps give an indication of what's going on. And then I compare that usually to first-party data sets from uh, websites, apps, and different ad platforms, depending on you know what type of audience you're going after. So I try to compare, well, here's what everybody's looking for, and here's what's happening on our stuff, and what's the big gap there? And, and starting there really helps people understand things. Yeah, I love that. As a content marketer, I totally relate to that. What, yeah. what tools are you using to, um, to find what people are searching for? All of them. I am a tool mm-hmm. junkie. I am a tab addict. <laughs> I have way nice. too many tabs open. Uh, but I do love looking at some of the basics, you know, the go-tos of Google Trends, the AREFs, you know, the SEO tools are very good. If, okay. you under- if you can understand what you're looking at, and that is a big one, put a little asterisk next to that. Sometimes you're looking at data and you yourself can interpret it incorrectly. And mm. that is uh, an issue, I think, in some marketing teams where you have people responsible for content and people responsible for advertising, and they aren't working together. Uh, so when you're targeting audiences through programmatic media, for example, 
there's a lot of real rich data coming off the ad networks there that the content team isn't getting access to. So you need to make sure there's a way to communicate the different data sets through your internal team. Yeah, I totally agree. And it'd be interesting to hear, we'll talk about this in a bit, like in terms of B2B, or mm-hmm. maybe I'll ask you now, actually, in B2B, it, it can sometimes be a little bit harder to understand what people are searching. Like think of a CFO or a C-suite, a decision maker at a large company. You know, are they really going to Google and looking up lending solution, something yes, like that? They is, are is, actually. They are. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's wow. what's fascinating is a lot really? of the B2C strategies apply to B2B from an insights gathering uh, layer. So uh, one of my favorite quotes was from a former boss of mine of, you need to be insights informed. Like you can't show up to a meeting and not have insights. As a marketer, it's your responsibility to have insights. That's where all the ideas come from. Uh, that's Whether you like it or not is irrelevant. It's not what the campaigns aren't meant for you. Uh, as a great marketer, you need to be able to build a campaign on a topic you know nothing about. So where do you get that? It starts with insights, data informed, insights informed. Uh, I call them spreadsheet marketers. You know, if you can't put together a story looking at data, uh, then that's not, FinTech's just not going to hang. <laughs> you have to understand that. But the B2B space has some great insights. Bombora is an awesome tool if you have the ability to use it. They offer a free one, I believe. There's a, there's a higher upsell in there. I haven't it, heard of it. What what does it do? It's an it's a B2B intent data. So you can set up a quick query yourself, I think, with a free account, and you can take a look at the intent. So they'll tell you this business is looking for started looking for branding, for example. And you can sign up for alerts on your own, your own keywords, your own names, your own categories. And so we can see, we get notifications and we can see that certain B2B audiences have started searching for predictive credit solutions, for example, or uh, lending technology AI, little buzzwords like that. So we can then, it's really, you know, the interesting intent data where we can start to see this is what's bubbling up in the B2B space. Like it. It's a bit like SparkToro. That's what Mm, it sounds like, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, super useful. So moving on to kind of our our first segment. So just for our listeners, this episode, we're going to talk about three main topics, lead slash customer acquisition, messaging and branding, and then hiring, building a team. These are the three main problems that fintech marketers face nowadays. So this is what we'll be be talking about. And so on the first one, customer acquisition, let's start with, you know, the basics, TrackStar. From what I understand, you help credit reports. No, you help lending companies find errors in credit reports. Uh, and it's probably a bit more like obviously advanced than that. But what, who is your target market and uh, how are you? Yeah. How are you getting the, the word out to them? Well, we have a, a division, which is, I think, a little newer to some where we call it B to E, which is business to enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a business to business platform as well. And it's a white label software that's uh, in the credit space. We've been there for 16, 17 years now. And uh, from there, we've expanded all of our uh, intel and information coming off of our proprietary software and databases into a B2E solution, which is TrackStar AI. And our real focus is creating that secondary lending pipeline for lenders. So when you are looking at consumers who are coming in through a fintech 
portal of some kind, whether it be an API or through a form on your site. There's a lot of amazing microsecond moments that are happening that are powered by the fintech industry to be able to determine whether or not you can lend to this person, whether they're high risk or not. Are they trending downward, upward? Uh, and we love this type of data. We have our own proprietary data. We call it alt data, alternative data. And I think just in this past year, you can really see a shift in the industry where it's no longer just your FICO. It's no longer you know, your uh, income verification. There's all this rich data now available and it's really what you can do with it. So there's the banking industry and the big guys that are out there who are using some of the, the, the more modern technologies like Blend, for example. And then there are some that aren't and they are still using their own semi-antiquated nine-to-five decisioning, using humans. <laughs> so I tend mm. to break it down in how much of this is based on uh, a human deciding whether or not you should qualify, or can we really lean on the AI and APIs and some of the alt data? So we are marketing to a couple different audiences. Obviously, the investor network, uh, we've been speaking to heavily, talking about what we're doing. It's And then those who work in the online lending application processing. So if you are qualifying audiences for loans or insurance or different types of products that require information on someone, you want to be using our API because we can help you understand that this person might look a certain way to you based on the old facts of FICO and things. But we're able to tell you that this person actually has the ability to become a 720 within a certain time frame. So it's uh, at a very basic level, it can offer almost a a security layer to your underwriting and your risk models. And it's really designed around the audiences who are looking at the thin file credit scores, as well as those who um, are in the, the near prime audiences. The past year, a lot of people's credit has improved. Um, they've paid down debt, but we'll see that changing. You know, we've had a lot of support financially. Uh, you know, that's a different podcast, I think, but there's a, a lot of money that's been available to support audiences. And what we want people to understand is uh, you aren't using your own data very well to make decisions. So there's aggregators and others. I call it the acquisition wood chipper, you know, is how much can I shove into this thing? And, you know, 30% of it becomes revenue for a bank or a brand or a lender. And so what did you do with the remaining 70%? It's sitting in a database. You spent a lot of money to acquire it, and that audience isn't being used anywhere. They're not even being used in uh, retargeting or advertising because, you know, fintech and lending has a whole set of rules there. But I, I want to encourage people who work in fintech to go look at your own data and really be a great marketer off of your own data because it's easy to go out and buy clicks and leads and get connected that way. But what really, I think, sets the fintech audiences apart, uh, fintech marketers apart, are those who can go and mine their own databases and create their own audience segmentation and predictive models. So the fintech industry is amazing at predictive models for lending, like should, you know, risk models, underwriting models. But the marketing models, I don't see those to, those aren't typically the priority that you see in 
other areas of the company. And I feel like there's a, a very big opportunity to to grab that in the B2B and B2E space where you're you're connecting your data into other people's systems for them to make decisions on. Yeah, I totally get that. And like what 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 kind of data are you talking about? Like what is it what what is the type of data that you're seeing lending companies miss out on or or marketers also not not look at? Well, let's start with time. So the the element of time we're you know, I'm from Boston originally, so we say wicked fast where I'm from, right? So you're making a decision on someone in less than three seconds when you're working with some of the big guys. And there are service level agreements where your operating system has to meet certain timing uh, elements like that through your API. You can't be you can't be slow and be in fintech. It's kind of a given. However, the culture at a lot of those companies tend to look at you know, did we, how many people came through the funnel today? How many applied? How many were, you know, credit qualified? And how many received an offer and then accepted the offer? And it's on a day-to-day basis. And so there's this huge amount of data that's maturing that's 90 plus days out. So a lot of lending in the United States is you, you have to pull the credit again after 30 days. So you have a 30-day window to get something going. However, if you look past that 30 days to those who were declined or for those for whatever reason who didn't accept an offer, you know, there's a different type of data that's becoming available past that 30-day window. So for example, there's a, a large audience that will accept an offer way past 90 days. They didn't choose anything in that first moment. So your zero moment of truth, because we're operating in milliseconds in fintech, you have to kind of like stop for a second, look up from your keyboard and realize that they didn't make a decision and there's still a huge audience available to convert 90 days out, six months out. And then forget it, a year feels like forever. It's like prehistoric land in fintech. A year later, what are you doing with that data? Can you append other types of data to it? Can you run it through a predictive model and now see that, wow, you know, 11% of this database is now credit worthy? but they were declined at a certain Mm. credit grade a year ago. So the best example would be this past year. A lot of people paid down debt. So a year ago, they they looked very different to some of the, the lenders, the fintech lenders, than they do now. And so this is where this whole business came from. We want to help people understand and use your own data to reveal currently credit qualified audiences that weren't available to you when you first purchased that lead or that click a year ago. I could go yeah. on and on. Sorry. So in, in a way, it's like increasing your addressable market, really, because you're just looking back on yes what you already have. Right. And then my favorite okay. is, you know, what what we know the big guys do, Google, Facebook, and all the big programmatic platforms is that lookalike audience modeling. Yeah. Now, that is fascinating to me that a lot of that isn't used in what I call retention marketing. So there's the acquisition marketers who are aggressive. You know, they have a lot of numbers to hit. They're looking at cost per lead. They're looking at uh, ROAS or ROAS, however you want to say that. And they are down to the penny. You know, they know exactly how to move their mission control, but move them into a retention strategy. Now they have to look at totally different data sets. So you have to be able to predict what happens with your your, uh, vintages, as we've heard it called, vintages and lending portfolio. 
you know, are they going to refinance out of your product? You know, the, the competition loves to do that in the personal loan space, for example. They'll make a better offer to your, your customer, refinance them out of your loan and into theirs. And so the retention team has to be, uh, has to be using predictive tools or even their own proprietary models. But what else can they do to help make sure that person stays with them? And content really kicks into gear here. You know, content tends to be, I want to unfortunately say an afterthought when you're a spreadsheet marketer or it's on the acquisition side, but customer experience, some of those very basic things on a portal where you're logging in to see your current statement, there's a huge opportunity in retention and content strategy there. You know, financial literacy, I think is a cool term. I think it's I think marketers like it, but I don't think it's received well by audiences because it's like, you should pay down your credit cards. And it's like, no kidding. Still I buying know coffee. that. Right. Great. Exactly. <laughs> Give me something a little more edgy. You know, I'm, I, I like to be a marketer who, if there are people who don't agree with the marketing, then it's going well because there's a whole audience that loves it, right? Nice. When you're vanilla and you're trying to market to everyone and you don't want to either offend anyone or ostracize anyone, and I know we're being more inclusive now, but you still need to be segmented in what you're talking about, and you still need to make sure that audience feels like you understand them. So there might be a whole audience that's like, well, that's not for me. I don't need that. That's like, exactly. But these people do. So we could keep talking about all that, but. <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting to hear this because this might be just my perception, but I feel like in this fintech space, because it's such a new industry, there's a big focus on acquisition. Oh, yeah. Whereas, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, we're just starting out. We're just a couple of years out. We're still focusing on, on um, you know, activating users. So retention isn't maybe such a big part of the conversation. And here you're just talking to me about how how important retention is and also that there's an entire kind of area that hasn't been it's not really being explored in the fintech space mm-hmm. in the banking space it probably it, it very much is because banking has been around for decades right yes. so retention is more of a focus so it's interesting that you're saying well i don't know if, if you are saying this but would you say that fintech companies need to focus more on retention is that should it be a bigger part of the mm-hmm. conversation and then my next question would be how do you try and prioritize that when your investors are asking you, right. okay, but how many, how many customers are you acquiring? Right. You know, they don't, they're not talking about retention just yet. So I don't know, there's a question there, but. There's yeah. a, <laughs> there's a, there is a formula there, right? So let's go back uh-huh. to the beginning where you're like, what, how do you do this? And I'm like, you start with data. So I love to do the hypothesis of if I could show you a way to hit this number without increasing acquisition, would you listen to me? And that answer is retention. So a lot of businesses are, I mean, they are flying through acquisition funnels, huge, huge volume coming through there. And it's, they're, they're okay with the 27% or 31% conversion number. And it's like, all right, well, but what about the rest of this? This is a massive database you're accumulating you're actually paying for a lot of software to maintain that database. I'll just let's talk about the security layer on all of that data. And it's like, but everything is data is now the big valuable element. Uh, it used to be really great pricing and, and promotional offers. And now we're talking about the element of time. So if you're really good at marketing, you're constantly talking about how much time you saved somebody or something happened with one little tap of my thumb or the iPhone 
as genius UX has connected something for me. And, and what blows me away is the 37 steps that happened in the background on the dev team, that they made it so seamless that I just felt like, oh, wow, cool, that worked. And then nobody has any idea what it took to make that happen. So the time element is so important. But when you're looking at the giant funnels, you get so focused on all those conversion metrics. I feel very much that I could stop and increase the bottom of that funnel if we have a better retention strategy. So if we know that someone's going to refinance out of their product within six months, or they're going to pay it off, right? So you don't make any money as the lender when you do that, or when they do that. So what can you do ahead of time? And oftentimes, nobody cares. They're just, let's just go get more leads in the door, uh, or let's process more uh, offers. And I feel as though you could be running that same kind of acquisition methodology within your own database. So do you have the right customer portal? Do you have the right communication strategies with your existing customers and existing data? That would be a big question to put in front of yourself. And can you create a formula where retention has an impact on acquisition? Yeah, I, what, what, what I think is interesting, okay, so just to go back to, to Trackstar, mm-hmm. Trackstar is a fintech solution, but you're also, from everything you're telling me, it's also you know, you're also helping lending companies with their marketing and their retention strategy, mm-hmm. kind of, right? Oh, yeah. And that's why you're talking about it right now. It's basically Trackstar is not just a, a fintech solution. It's also a, yeah, a product or a customer retention solution. Yes. Well, right? we talk about the decisioning engines, right? So you've got the acquisition funnel, and I, I call it a decisioning engine. It's probably a different word somewhere else. But, you know, how many people are you making a decision on? And is that in an acquisition channel or is that over here in a different product set? And I love to see when I can put information or uh, run software on a database and it gives me insights all the way back to the beginning of our, our conversation. What insights can you give me so I can do something about it? There's a ton of analytics software out there, you know, all the way from the tableaus to the big guys, and they give you all this info. But then the other element that's often missing is, okay, so what am I going to go do about that insight? Or does this matter? So it's like, well, cool. I'm glad they like their their statements from us and they love our SMS notifications. Okay, so does that make a difference (laughs) anywhere? Can I attribute it to a revenue generating KPI? I don't know. Do, Do the marketers even know what the revenue generating KPIs are? Because sometimes we tend to avalanche our colleagues with tons of data and analytics and it's like all right well so what if uh we have 11 percent spike in in new users to the website so so what what does that mean did that translate anywhere is it just because we're offering a free t-shirt i mean you could be like rogue aggressive marketer over here and jam all the numbers up but if it doesn't shift anything in a revenue kpi that didn't matter so we like to look at can I put something on my database that gives me insights so I don't have to go into my acquisition team and, and go get more money for them? That's ruthless. Mm-hmm. If you haven't done acquisition marketing in the fintech online lending space, <laughs> wow, I feel like I need like 
tattoos or something from that. It's very aggressive, super competitive, uh, and there's a ton of money. I mean, there's big spenders. These are the folks that are doing Super Bowl spots. These are the folks that, you know, they're not the balance sheet lender. They're not providing the funds. They're just getting those leads, getting those applicants in and moving them out into those who are funding the loan. Big, Mm -hmm. big formulas there. So use your own data. Start there. So in terms of the pain points that Trackstar is solving, we would say, you know, part of it is increasing, well, no, kind of acquisition, but through retention mm-hmm. and also, well, using alternative data. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what, what, are the, what are the specific pain points that you're solving with, with Trackstar? We are able to reduce your cost of acquisition. That's the big one. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. because you can run our uh, API against your current database, we can tell you what percent of that audience and that database can now qualify. So we can tell you okay. who the new credit qualified audience people are. So you don't have to go out and buy them again. But marketing needs to be able to do something with that new audience segment that is truly just yours. That is your first party data audience. You didn't have to go buy it from Google or from an aggregator of some kind. It's now sitting there for you. And creating a way for the marketing team or retention team to do something with that audience is important. So it's that predictive element. So we'll, we can also tell you who's downward trending or you know, who is upward trending. So for example, imagine if you, were, you had a loan. And you've improved your credit over the past year. You've worked really hard at paying down some debt and things like that. But no, nobody does anything about it except the, you start getting offers for lower interest rates from other brands. But the person you have a loan from isn't doing anything with that information. That's what I'm talking about in retention. We have the ability to tell you what's happening with this through a different type of data set than your typical FICO. And the other biggest one is truly optimizing that 70% of your funnel that didn't qualify. That's really where this sits and helping you understand here are the different vintages coming out of that 70% and now you can do something with it. So are you usually targeting marketing teams, um, like C-suite marketing teams at lending companies or is it more on the product? We, yeah. So we've spoken to everything from risk to customer experience to the product development teams, to uh, individual credit unions, you know, all the way down to the systems that they use. So a lot of them use, you know, third parties for their lending, their lending engines, their decisioning engines and their models. But some of them have their own proprietary product that they want to get another look at. But we work with everyone, but marketing, those on the acquisition front, who could move the needle, even just 1% would like completely blow everyone's mind. And some of our, some of our case studies can indicate anything up to 11% increase in offers generated to applicants. You know, that's a huge number. You just literally went and found money without spending it. So being able to increase the ability to present an offer to someone that you just spent a ton of money acquiring so from, let's say we took the 27% and we made it 37%. So you can increase your offers by 10%. You know, you're going to walk into a meeting as the acquisition team and, and kind of do a jig. Yeah. So, I mean, really the hard part then is 
you know, getting in front of the right, like getting in front of these, the customer acquisition team or the right teams that know, mm -hmm. right, um, this is actually going to help us lower our customer acquisition cost. So I kind of want to talk now about Trackstar, how you're getting in front of the the right kind of personas that you're targeting, because that is like the, the hard part. Um, I know you've done some LinkedIn outreach campaigns and you've also got a mm -hmm. PR firm. So I'd mm -hmm. love to hear how, how you've done that and how that's worked for you. Yes. So you've got to find the right PR person. I can, can't stress that enough. <laughs> we, we were very picky on working with someone who understood that this was a complicated topic. Yeah. Because again, it's kind of marketing 101. You need to make sure you're speaking to the right people. And so that was a requirement. Uh, also, we spent a lot of time uh, on LinkedIn cultivating the type of ideal, like who is our perfect, like who would make me super excited if I had a meeting request come through with them. And we wanted to talk to the big guys. So we spoke to the PayPals and those folks to run this by them because this is all they do. They live and breathe this. And we wanted to hear what they had to say about it and, and get those meetings. So LinkedIn has been a very powerful platform also using the lead generation outreach and making sure we we set appointments uh, through Zoom versus the typical funnel of let me give you a white paper and try to warm you up. And instead, we were much more aggressive, very sales mm -hmm. focused uh, because we had a small audience. This isn't, you know, thousands of people. This is a couple hundred ideal and perfect audiences for us. And and we, I think we succeeded there. You know, it was, there are some, some, <laughs> some demos where you can tell they have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, or the flip side would be they're so big, and I'm sure you can insert the name of any bank or financial company here. They were so big. There were so many people involved. It's impossible to make this move forward. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. a long sales cycle. It's a, you know, moving through some predictive testing to show them some outcomes before we roll it out into a sandbox and into testing from there. So, but one of the big things we've done is, you know, we are hosted through AWS, really easy for you as the other business to connect your, your system to us and run some testing. Uh, but but again, coming back to creating that short list, you know, who, who are our prospects from a B2E audience? You know, 100 to 200 prospects was where we started. And we went through and did a lot of demos with them. Uh, but LinkedIn was really the linchpin on that. Cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what was your most effective, like, customer acquisition channel? And it seems like it was LinkedIn. Absolutely. But again, you know, LinkedIn only works if you have a following. You know, if you sure. have a network. So sometimes I, I've watched executives who have huge backgrounds. You know, they know everyone, but they haven't ever been on LinkedIn. And that's, a, that's a, almost a tragedy because their network is only through them personally and maybe through email. But what the power I love of LinkedIn is you have followers and then you have the different connections. And I just have to say, I firmly believe in being one of those stewards on LinkedIn where if someone reaches out and is really honest and genuine and transparent and not trying to like manipulate me, I have no problem helping them. I really don't. And I feel like that's sort of that digital karma coming back. You know, if you have to be willing to have conversations with people uh, on LinkedIn 
And you have to be willing to ask for those as well. And it's not, you know, it's a different social channel. It's very professional. And I think it's important that who is ever listening to me today, you know, remembers that, you know, be the good, be the person that's like, oh, let me help open the store for them. What is it? It doesn't hurt you in any way. Now, it can get excessive. You know, I have a lot of requests every day for all kinds of demos and things. But if you do your homework and you know you've done a little research and you're nailing a pain point of mine, I'm happy to listen. And I've met some interesting people this way. So when you talk about LinkedIn, yeah, we're, we're talking about, I mean, you've got, um, you're, are you building the, the Trackstar LinkedIn page or are you talking mostly about just outreach to both uh you know we get pitches a lot for all different alt data that they want to talk to us about you know and it might be something that actually wow you know that could work really well or personally my network on linkedin uh you know who who is who am i connected to and how could they help others uh i think that's oftentimes overlooked until you, you know, so I I think people can be kind of self-centered and, you know, I need a job or I need a meeting or I need a this instead of, you know, the community that you mentioned, like on Slack, you know, maybe, maybe something I've been challenged with and figured out how to overcome. It might've been 10 years ago. I have no idea. Maybe that helps somebody. And so I I feel like uh, you, you need to make sure you have community and not just sales appointments. Yeah. And also in, in talking about outreach, I think a good example would be um, your PR person who re- who reached out to me mm-hmm. where I just think that what what works is just personalizing the message to, and, and it's what you said, right? Like doing your research and making sure you're helping them rather than being self-centered. Yes. Yes. And the reason your, your PR person did such a good job is just because they obviously had done the research and uh, know, knows what the podcast is about and knows why you know, an interview with yourself would be relevant to the mm-hmm. podcast. And it's so rare, but it's it's so simple <laughs> right. and and straightforward, right? right. And yet <laughs> and yep. right there. Yep. Um and and yet um I don't know why, yeah, it doesn't seem to happen. And I, I like everyone else get a lot of requests through LinkedIn and I ignore all of them because mm-hmm. they're never personalized and never relevant. Yeah. So and I feel like relevant. You know, if, if you haven't ever been in a sales role where you had to, you know, smile and dial, you had to make a single cold call in your life, you really missed out on a very valuable training to understand. Mm. I, I, early in my career, I did the Dale Carnegie sales training. This is a long time ago. Cool. And I had to do 60 cold calls a day in a job as a very young person trying to make my way in it in a direct mail house. It was back before the internet really took off. And I was terrified of making these phone calls, but I had scripts and I had training, but I quickly learned that if I, if I looked up um, press releases and annual reports, I could learn something about their business and leave a very relevant voicemail or something and be way more interesting to talk to than what I needed. And that is very basic. And it's amazing to me how it still plays out. I see it in social media. I see it in all the new trends and channels. How am I addressing my audience's need? And so an enterprise level business has a very different need state than a consumer business. Uh, And I think sometimes when you have marketing teams, and I know you said we were going to get to this, but there are people on 
certain marketing teams that want to do a lot of social, for example, because they don't understand how the enterprise investor level audience operates. And it's like complete disconnect on the, the, the tactical delivery of a really important point. Uh, and I am a big believer of in the B2E space, you need to be providing content that allows very intelligent people to learn about you, digest it, and ask you questions. So that's why we produced a white paper that's available uh, for any audience who wants to know more about us. We have uh, one-pagers as well. So we've designed content that hits the people who are more analytical. And there's a ton of those in fintech. That's why they're in fintech. You know, statisticians and economics folks, they're doing amazing things. Um, but if I can provide some insights to them that makes them go, huh, now I hope they're interested enough to learn and listen to more. What what I'm hearing here is you're prioritizing writing for the level of your audience, which yes. um, I've talked. It's, it sounds like, you know, uh, obvious, but uh, as an SEO person, I have seen a lot of fintech, especially B2B. It's always more painful when it's B2B because you're targeting, you know, technical, more more advanced level knowledge. And then you're writing articles like there was one that I have in mind and it's stuff like, you know, how to write a balance sheet. And it's like, you're targeting CFOs. They're already going to know how to how to do that, you know? Yeah. Or how to so, add alternative okay. data to your balance sheet. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But you know, a lot so, of businesses don't know how to use SEO in B2B. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole nother podcast. That's why, that's why I exist. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to help fix that. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Okay, so let, let's move to our next segment, which is messaging and branding, because you, you touched on it before, you know, you're, it's a complex topic, and that's why it was really important to hire the right kind of PR person. How are you building a brand with something, with a product that not only is a complex topic, but if I understand correctly, has never been done before, this mm -hmm. type of alternative data? So how, how are you going about that? That's a great question. The, the beginning of this conversation internally with our team was, you know, let's make it as basic as we can. What are we? What are we? And, you know, there's a million ad agencies out there who do branding all day long. But truly, are we a software company? Are we a credit company? Are we a, you know, predictive model, data visualization, data science company? And I know I make this sound very simple, but it, that question often gets answered differently depending on who you ask within the organization. Mm -hmm. And so everyone needs to be able to answer this question in one word or one sentence. And we are a technology company. We focus on technology that uses data to help you make a better decision. And a lot of businesses can't articulate that. And that isn't the elevator pitch. That's just fundamentally, what are we? And positioning from a branding standpoint for Trackstar was really helping people understand that this is alternative data from a technology company. Our founder is a software guy. He wrote the software. He's very creative. Like technology and software is a whole nother medium. Uh, and I truly believe you aren't understanding branding if you can't articulate what are we and what are we not that's another one mm. uh, sometimes people get so you know convoluted in those long-winded i call them non-sentences 
Like I didn't actually answer you. I just gave you a long sentence full of nothing. Jargon. Or I answered the same thing everyone else says. So I'm not Mm -hmm. different in any way. So sometimes when you're working on these projects, I love to do the, okay, well, what are we not? Let's start there. Let's flip it upside down and answer who, what would be the worst thing? Who would be the worst person to talk to? Because it really helps create the contrast of who you are. Because sometimes people are, but we're this and we're that. And it's like, no, we're not. We can't compete with them. They do that all day long, but they don't do this. This is what we do. And we build technology. We build software. We help you connect to it safely and securely through AWS. Like we, we are always leading with technology. Mm, I like that. Start with what with what you're not. And then in terms of education, we, we kind of touched on content, but like, obviously, since it is a complex topic, you are having to educate your audience a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've mentioned white papers, one pagers, like what, what are some other ways that you're trying to uh, educate and yeah, reach your co- audience with I, content? So cliche, but podcasts, <laughs> getting, okay. uh, getting cool. our founder, Clint, uh, and I, you know, our PR person has handled this perfectly getting people to talk to him to listen to him talk about data and technology and software uh, and help people understand what that is but also getting the big publishers in the fintech space to cover uh, to cover us and talk about in long form content what we do you know it's really hard to talk about alt data and predictive credit scoring through APIs in one sentence or three yeah. sentences and you know when you're able to reduce someone's cost of acquisition you're going to catch you're going to catch those COA ears the folks who live and breathe that uh, so we wanted to make sure we went after some of the niche publications that are out there online actively doing webinars and hosting uh, interviews much like what we're doing today yeah, nice. Uh, so I'm conscious of time. So let's just uh, move on to like hiring sure. and building a team, which I know you have a lot of experience in, which is actually my first question. Um, you've been in marketing uh, for many years. What what has what are you looking for when you're hiring someone in marketing? And what 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 has been your approach at Trackstar? Well, number one for me personally is I want to. F- I want to see someone be a resourceful, independent starter. So yes, there's a lot of other factors that play into your skill set. But if you don't have the ability to go figure something out on your own and come back and say, hey, I found this thing, uh, you're not going to succeed at the breakneck speed of fintech. Uh, Mm, And, you know, unfortunately, I know the landscape is changing and, you know, there's a a bigger priority on work-life balance, but uh, you have to be competitive still. And being able to be somebody who can go figure some things out or go find an insight or some trends somewhere and showing up to your team and being on a team where you contribute that and then you ask people, what would you do with this? Now you're being very collaborative and innovative. Uh, I think the teams that struggle are the ones that have kind of overly defined roles, you know, and in, in the in the culture of, well, that's not my job. And it's like, okay, but maybe the person over here actually could think differently about your challenge. So I love when you can bring in other points of view and and have a very respectful conversation and be collaborative, whiteboard it or innovate it. Uh, and you know, I think sandboxes and labs are buzzwords if you aren't actually producing something. 
So let's throw a goal out there and find different types of people to be on a team if they have the time and innovate. And so if your business isn't culturally designed to allow people to make a mistake, you're going to have people that don't speak up. So I love to find people who are creative and give them a little bit of breathing room to be wrong. And I love to say, like, you know, nobody needs to run for cover here. You know, we need to be together here. And when you create that kind of culture, you have a great team. They feel comfortable innovating or trying new things. What would you say to other CMOs at fintech companies who are struggling to hire right now? I think uh, in fintech, there is a bit of the pedigree crowd. They look for the, the big schools, the big brands, you know, they, they're, they're missing out on some of the rogue folks that are out there who I, you know, for lack of a better description, were a little scrappier, you know, they've, they've got on, maybe on the side, they have a whole business where they're producing great content and, and you have no idea that they do that when they're at home. They're like, interesting. So I, I think that there's a different audience out there that we're, they're missing out on because of the kind of the financial industries precedence of the pedigree. Yeah, I understand that. Great. Well, uh, Diana, I have one more question for you, which is um, so you've been the CMO of Trackstar for four years. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So a bit over four years. And I'd be, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share any lessons that you've learned throughout your time there while you've been helping build and grow the company. Oh, lessons learned. Well, um, don't be shy. <laughs> Scott, our PR person, has been very helpful. Uh, but making sure you're comfortable speaking about your business and practicing that. You know, I've been doing marketing for a long time. And I think sometimes people can get overly confident. And just a reminder that, you know, to rehearse, practice, understand what you're talking about. What are the main points you want people to know? Uh, and don't be afraid to do sales. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, you can have a yeah. big job title, but sometimes picking up the phone, shooting a text to somebody you used to work with gets you so much farther than basic marketing. So it's kind of the old school stuff. The lost yeah, no, the lost um, start of a phone call is is kind of a trend now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's great tips. And I think actually in this podcast, you have very well articulated uh, what Trackstar is and, and what you're doing with marketing. So kudos to to getting it really well. Oh, thank Done. you. Yeah, so thank you so much, Diane. I really appreciate you you coming on and talking to us, talking to us about marketing and, and Trackstar. And I think it's, I'm really interested to see what what will you what you'll be doing in the future uh, in terms of oh, thank you acquisition and retention. So thank you very much. Yes. Oh, thanks for reaching out. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find all the information and show notes over at fintechmarketinghub.com and then click on podcast. We've also got a fintech marketing Slack community where you can meet fellow fintech marketers and founders, ask podcast guest questions ahead of a show and attend exclusive online events with industry experts. We'd love to see you in there, hear your feedback and learn about the challenges you're currently facing in your role. To join, head to fintechmarketinghub.com forward slash Slack. That's all for today. See you in the Slack.